Buenos días. That means good morning. <laughs> well, uh, today is a different time to read the Bible, so I will read in Spanish, and you can follow by the screen. So the Bible, the verse of the Bible today is Acts uh, chapter 16, verse 23 to 34. Uh, la cita del día de hoy es Hechos capítulo 16, versículos 23 hasta el 34. Después de haberle azotado mucho, los echaron en la cárcel, mandando al carcelero que los guardase con seguridad, el cual, recibido este mandamiento, les metió en el calabozo de más adentro y les aseguró los pies con el cepo. Pero a la medianoche, orando Pablo y Silas, cantaban himnos a Dios y los presos los oían. Entonces sobrevino de repente un gran terremoto de tal manera que los cimientos de la cárcel se sacudían y al instante se abrieron todas las puertas y las cadenas de todos se soltaron. Despertando el carcelero y viendo abiertas las puertas de la cárcel, sacó la espada y se iba a matar pensando que los presos habían huido. Pero Pablo clamó a gran voz diciendo, no te hagas ningún mal, pues todos estamos aquí. Entonces, pidiendo luz, se precipitó adentro y temblando se postró a los pies de Pablo y de Silas y sacándolos les dijo, «Señores, ¿qué debo hacer para ser salvo?». Ellos dijeron, «Cree en el Señor Jesucristo y serás salvo tú y tu casa». Y les hablaron la palabra del Señor a él y a todos los que estaban en su casa. Y él, tomándolos en aquella misma hora de la noche, les lavó las heridas y enseguida se bautizó él con todos los suyos». Y llevándolos a su casa, les puso la mesa y se regocijó con toda su casa de haber creído en Dios. God bless you. El Señor les bendiga. Amen. Thanks be to God. Holy, thank you for reading the, the word and the scripture to us. Uh, a couple weeks ago when we gave the Daring Faith update of your generosity and, uh, and overabundance of God's goodness to us, uh, we had introduced Holyo as well in that through the Daring Faith uh, Capital Campaign. I had a few people at North Campus come up to me and say, Ethan, I can't tell you what it did to me this morning to be able to hear somebody pray in my native tongue. How sweet it was for someone to pray in the language that I first learned and that I grew up with. And it was a beautiful thing. When we look at the body of Christ, when we look at the church, it's to all nations, every tribe, every people group, and every tongue. So, Julio, thank you. We're excited for what God has in store for us here in the Roanoke Valley to reach uh, uh, the Hispanic population here. It's a large opportunity. Uh, and it's incredible to see just in the, in the movement of the Southern Baptist Conservatives of Virginia that we're a part of. That's one of the main thrusts here in Virginia. It's such a large people group that we have the opportunity to reach. So, thank you, Julio. Uh, we're going to be in Acts 16, as Julio read in Spanish, uh, starting in verse 16, and we're going to actually end in verse 34. Uh, but before I continue in um, the message this morning, John Sharp, our former campus, campus pastor at Southwest, is preaching live this morning at Southwest. And North Campus, glad to have you in our services this morning. I actually had a couple of people say uh, over the weekend such like, hey, I'll see you on Sunday. And I was like, yeah, you'll see me, but I, I can't see you. It Does, doesn't work that way. And uh, thanks for joining us online, those of you that are watching uh, there as well. So here in Acts chapter 16, as we, we don't jump in here and we've been looking at uh, peace through the storms of life, uh, here we're going to see where Paul and Silas have been on a missionary journey. They've been journeying through uh, many of the cities. This is the second uh, missionary journey of Paul. And uh, we're going to see that they get thrown in a jail. So as uh, Holyo read, from us, um, read for us, I'm going to read verse 16 through 25. So that way we are 24. That way we get a, a grasp of the context here. So read it, follow along in your copy of the scriptures this morning. It says, and as we were going to the place of prayer, 
We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out. All right, hang on, time out. Paul's got to stop right here. So Luke is the author of Acts. He's also the author of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, When he wrote this, he's a historian. He's writing these as a document to say, hey, here's the truth and authenticity of the life of Jesus. If you read the first chapter of Luke and the first chapter of Acts, he's going to say, to my dear Theophilus, I'm writing these things on account to you. He saw these things firsthand. There's three times throughout the book of Acts that as Uh, Luke is writing, he changes from like them to an us vocabulary. And this is the first of this time where he's actually with the people. So Paul is, or as Luke is, he's writing this account of Paul and Silas. It isn't like, hey, I heard this from Paul or heard this from somewhere else. But no, he was actually with Paul and Silas when this happened. So that's why you're going to see that us uh, vocabulary here. So picking back up in verse 16, she followed Paul and us crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, I love that. Paul got annoyed. Like, we oftentimes look at Paul as like almost perfect. And he's like, man, I'm annoyed. This girl needs to go. Something's got to happen here. So in this, he says, he turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that, her, that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods." And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So when we read this, we have to realize that the context, it's not like Paul and Silas were just locked and put in handcuffs and put in a a jail cell. Like, no, they were stripped naked. They were embarrassed in front of public and were beaten with rods which is a stick that you just, just pulverized Paul and Silas. So their bodies are pretty messed up at this point in time. It's not a nice scene to be seen here as we jump into this. So there's three things I want us to see in this text. If you have your notes in hand or you have your journal, we want, well, I want you to see this. The first is this, that storms are for your growth. When storms come our way, when, when things are difficult and not easy, it's for our growth. So I want you to think about this. If you're a follower of Jesus in this room, if you're proclaiming, hey, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, I want you to think about the times in your life when you have experienced major growth spiritually. Think about those seasons. What was it that surrounded you? What was it that was going on in your life that led to that major growth? When I reflect upon my life, it's not the easy seasons that propelled me forward in my faith. It was the difficult, the hard, the seasons when I realized I couldn't do it on my own. I want you to think about this. Spiritual maturity is moving from independence of God to complete dependence upon him. So think of it as a sliding scale. So if I have in my right hand over here, I have, this is, I'm completely independent of God. And my left hand over here, your right, is I'm completely dependent upon God. The more spiritually mature I am, when I mature in my faith, and we slide back and forth, it's, it's not like once we make a tick, like we're there forever. Like, no, we're sliding back and forth. When seasons come where it's like it's dark and it's hard, we realize our need for Christ, and we become more dependent upon him every single day. 
But when we feel like, or when we think, hey, seasons are easy, things are going well right now, then we easily slide back into independence saying, I've got this. Like, God, thank you for today. Your mercies are new every morning. I know this. You keep me alive. But I've really got this under control, God. Then when seasons of despair come, seasons of storm come, that's when you realize, like, man, I'm really in control of nothing. There's nothing that I can't control, really anything that surrounds me. So therefore, I move to more dependence upon who God is. So in my story, when I think about this and think about how God has moved me in these seasons of time, I think about when I was a seventh grader going into my eighth grade year that summer is when I came into a personal relationship with Jesus at a camp called Rhodes Grove up in Pennsylvania, right outside of Harrisburg. And in that season and time, uh, there wasn't anything catastrophic going on in my life. I grew up a good kid. My parents raised me right. I had good morals, had good manners, all those things, but I wasn't a gospel kid. And so I grew up, and I remember Andy Secor was teaching at this summer camp, and we went from the worship service in the chapel to a a campfire setting, uh, and they were just singing worship music around the fire pit. And it was at that moment in time that I realized that my good is not good enough, and that I need to put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so I never walked an aisle. I never said a prayer. To that camp's knowledge in their annual report, they never knew that I came into a relationship with Jesus at that camp. But Christ changed me and transformed me. Moving into my freshman year in high school, my dad suffered a massive heart attack. I remember waking up at 2 o'clock in the morning to hearing my sister scream and cry. And and I didn't know what was going on, so I sat up in bed. My mom walked into my bedroom, and she said, Hey, Ethan, you're going to have to get dressed because we've got to go to the hospital. Your dad's had a heart attack, and and we we don't really know what's going on right now. So we got in my car and we drove over, or got, my mom got in the car, we drove over to UVA Hospital. He'd been air vac from Augusta Health over to UVA. And the whole, whole way over to UVA, we don't know whether my dad's alive or dead. And we drive over there and we get to there and we've, we realize that he's dead, or he's alive, excuse me, he's not dead, he's alive. He's stable, he's doing well. And the, the nursing staff came up to my mom and said, Miss Callison, we, we don't know how your, your husband has survived this. Medically speaking, he should be dead. His heart attack should have wiped him out. We don't know what's, what's, what's happened here. And so fast forward a little bit over a year, my dad has recovered. A lot of changes has happened in our household. A lot of dietary changes happened that we didn't like. That then has been reversed back. Now we like what mom fixes. And um, my sophomore year in high school, I'm throwing shot putting discus out at our football field. And a family friend comes walking up to the, to the field. And I thought she was just there to visit. She was a teacher, so I thought maybe she was visiting other teachers or something. And she goes over to my coach and starts talking to him. And then she comes over to me and she says, Ethan, I'm going to need you to go get your stuff. We've got to go to the hospital. Your, your, your father's in the hospital. He's okay, but he's in the hospital. So we go and I get my stuff and we drive over to Augusta Medical Center. And we walk in and I see my dad. And what had happened is he fell 30 foot off a ladder at work. And he'll tell you, he says, the fall doesn't hurt. It's that sudden impact with the ground that really gets you. And his face collided with a, a ring of a ladder, smashed his face. He had, his cranium was broken, in th- or massive fractured in three separate spots. He dislocated his right shoulder, and in doing so, he tore his bicep tendon that ripped from his shoulder, and his whole bicep was just sitting at his elbow, where it was set there for weeks, frozen as uh, workman's comp had to get all the paperwork and all that through there to finally have surgery. And I watched my dad go from a heart attack to falling 30 foot off a ladder to where he was a very active man to where he could barely lift his arm to about here. This is a guy, a man who works for a living, who's a 
carpenter for a living, does electricity, all these things, and he can't swing a hammer anymore. And I just watched my dad go through this. But in the season of time, I was like, God, where, where are you at in this? Why is this happening? My, our family's really just thriving in a relationship. We're connected in the body of Christ. We're really connected in community. What's going on here? About four weeks after my dad took a fall off the ladder, we were sitting, in, and I'll never forget this day till the day I die. We were sitting outside. It was a Saturday afternoon. My nephew had had a t-ball game that morning. We came back, and it was in the afternoon. We just finished up eating dinner, and we're out throwing baseball and hitting a ball with my nephew. And my dad's cell phone goes off, and it's his brother. And my dad doesn't answer it, and he says, I'll call him back later. He goes to voicemail, and then immediately it rings again. And he says, it's my brother. So he answers the phone, and he says, hello. And it's not his brother. It's his sister-in-law, Jane. And Jane says, uh, hey, Trooper, I just want to let you know that your, your brother was in a motorcycle accident today where he was hit by a drunk driver, and he didn't make it. And my whole family for the next months was numbness. Why? Why would such a horrific thing happen to an incredible human being? See, it wasn't just an uncle that I lost, but he was a second father to me. He taught me a lot of hunting. I'd spent a lot of hours in the woods. He trained me how to shoot a bow. It's like a second dad to me. And in this season of time and all these storms that are surrounding me, God, where are you at? What are you doing? I know you're up to something, though, and I don't know what it is. The storms that are in your life are for your growth. Because I realized that I could not do it on my own, but I was in complete need of God, and I needed to be dependent upon him for every waking moment of every day. You see, when we face storms, we will either grow in our dependency upon God, or we will grow in our cynicism towards him, which leads to our independence from him. Let me say that again for you. When we face storms, we will either grow in our dependency upon God, or we will grow in our cynicism towards him, which leads us in our independence from him. Storms are designed, God redeems them in your life so that you grow. We see Paul here in verse 25, it says, if you look in your scriptures, it says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns. Why did they do that? Why was it midnight? Why were they praying and singing hymns? I think it's because they knew that that's all they could do. The rest was up to God. They were dependent upon God for that moment in time. And God, right now, all that we can do is pray and sing. And that's what we're going to do in the place and the time of where we're at. And we're going to leave the rest up to you. If you read the book of Acts, there's twice that, that somebody's in prison. This one, and there's another story in Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12 is a little bit different. Actually, the only thing that remains the same is that people are in prison and God does some incredible things. Outside of that, they're two completely different stories. In Acts chapter 12, Peter is in prison for proclaiming the gospel, and he receives, uh, he thinks, a vision in the night where an angel comes to him, and a light guides his way out, and doors just miraculously open up, and he walks out of the prison cells, untouched, unscathed, and all this, and walks, and then he's outside the prison, and he's free. And then he realizes, oh, this isn't a vision, this is real life. So in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, it says that when he realizes this, when he realizes that it's no longer a vision, when it's not a vision, but it's real, it says he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was John Mark, where many were gathered together, and guess what they were doing? Praying. That's all they could do. Pray. 
In our seasons of storm, it's for our growth so that we are dependent upon God. And prayerlessness, you've heard this quote here before at FCC, Daniel Henderson says, prayerlessness is independence upon God. We are to be dependent upon him, connecting relationally with him. I love what James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes about this in James chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. He says, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. Your faith has a chance to grow in the midst of a storm. And I believe God desires for a storm, for the storms are for your growth. So the second thing we're going to see, the first thing are storms are for your growth. The second thing we see is, is in this text as it plays itself out is that storms are for those that are around you. They're for those that are around you. Every storm that you go through obviously is going to impact you. It's going to make a difference in your life. Almost all the time, but not all the time, does it make an impact on those around you. Because you might be going through an internal storm that no one else knows about. How can that impact others if they don't know about it? But almost all the time, it impacts those around you. I love this quote. I couldn't figure out who it's originally from. I've heard many people say it. So therefore, it's from the unknown, right? It says this, be careful how you live. You may be the only Bible some persons ever read. And when, when we think about that, when we as follow, if you're a follower of Jesus, now if you're not here, you're listening online and you're not a follower of Jesus, this does not adhere to you. Behave and do whatever you want. But if you are a follower of Jesus, we obey by God's word, right? That's what we adhere our life to. What does God's word tell me to do? How I should live? And in that, I will walk. When storms come around us, it impacts those around us because it sees how our faith really is lived out through us. That is where we actually see where we where and what we believe. So how you handle the storms that are around you will make an impact in your family. Like this, how many of you are parents? Raise your hand, parent, grandparent. How many times has your kid said something or done something and you're like, my goodness, that's a spitting image of me. Like, wow. So our kids, our kids grew up, they, they watch us. They mimic our every move. Uh, one of the things that Katie and I do is we, we take time praying with Genevieve at the dinner table or just time still the day. And every night we pray for her. And uh, it was my dream when she was little. I was like, I can't wait for the day that I say, hey, Genevieve, let's pray. And she just begins praying. Well, we're there. Every night I say, Genevieve, like, Let, let's pray. And then bam, she just hops into it. Now she might be like, all right, dada, I'm ready to go to sleep and let's not like make this drag on. I know you're a preacher, you like to pray. So I'm just gonna pray and I'm gonna make this short so I can go to sleep. Or she gets a TikTok every night as well. So maybe she just wants a TikTok. I don't know. We're not bribing her though. This isn't Pavlos dog. Like every time you pray, you get a TikTok. That's not what we're doing here. Maybe that's a, that might be a good family discipleship thing there. I'll put that in the next book. But in this, Genevieve, how she prays, if I cl when I close my eyes and I just listen to her, she sounds like her mom and me praying. Why? Because that's what she's seen modeled for her. Those that are around you are going to model their life, especially if they know that you're a follower of Jesus and they're wanting to follow you as you follow Jesus. They're going to say, I'm going to act the way that they act because they're a follower of Jesus. No matter whether your intentions are for that or not. Even your coworkers. When you face a storm at work, your coworkers, you're going to either proclaim the gospel to them by the way that you handle a storm at work or not, because if you're a follower of Jesus, that's what they're going to model after. That's why we have to handle these things with truth and authenticity. Now, now, that doesn't mean, I don't want you to hear that I'm saying, just fake it till you make it. Like, just put on a face and make it seem like everything's good. No, you can be authentic and real and true and say, no, life just, sorry, mom, but sucks right now. <laughs> but I'll tell you who I put my faith in today. 
Jesus is my firm foundation, the rock upon, upon which I stand. When everything around me is shaken, he will never let me down. It impacts those that are around us. When I was growing up, or when you see in this text here in verse 25, the second half of it, it says that the prisoners were listening to them. So when Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns, the prisoners were listening. So it was making an impact on the prisoners. And when I was growing up and uh, really being molded and shaped post coming into relationship with Jesus by Jesus, there was a man who made an impact on our family's life. His name was Keith Burt. Keith Burt uh, was our life group leader for our family for many of years, an incredible man of God that just loved the scriptures and loved teaching and conveying the scriptures. But more so than teaching and conveying, guess where I learned to love Jesus from? The way that he loved Jesus. It wasn't just him sitting around the table teaching us, it was how he lived his life. And I want to share you a little bit of how he lived his life. So when Keith Burt was a teenager, a preteen, uh, he was diagnosed, I believe it was multiple sclerosis, but I might be off on the, on the medical term there, but his, his spine was curved in many different ways. And he had to go through a, an operation. It was the first of its kind down in Arlington, Texas, where three entire separate units of doctors, surgeons, and nurses came in, and they split his back open, and they shaved an entire wing, one of the wings off his vertebrae, entirely off, and they placed a rod and a spring on one side and a rod on the other to straighten out his back. It was an 18-hour-long surgery. And I forget how many months after the surgery, he was put in a full-body cast to keep his body from moving so that it could heal. And after the, the surgery and after the healing and all that, he was, he was well. And he loved to play golf. So he's told us before that his dad used to always say, I wish you would have never had the surgery because you're a better golf player now. And I think that spring in your back helps you hit the long ball a little better. Just finding good things in the midst of great adversity. But Keith, as he grew up, he lived a pretty normal life from what many would see. And when I met Keith in 2008, he was walking. He was walking with a cane, but he was walking. In a matter of a few short months, he went from walking with a cane to walking in with a walker to being confounded to a scooter to where he couldn't move his legs at all. By the time that I graduated high school, Keith Burke could barely pick up a pencil or a utensil or a cup or anything to do anything for himself because of how his body was attacking itself. But what I watched Keith do was love Jesus with all of who he had, all of who he was. It made an impact on me. Now, Keith would be honest and say, I'm not having a good, there was times when our family would get a text that, hey, I'm not feeling good tonight, so we're, we're not gonna have life group tonight. Hey, it's perfectly fine, Keith. But watching this man model what it looks like to love Jesus made an impact on me as I was one person, my family was one unit of families around him. In verses 25 through 30, I want, to, I want you to follow along in the scriptures as we read, as we see this point play itself out. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, and so the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? It's powerful. See, Paul and Silas were praying and singing, and this 
made an impact on the guard. Made an impact on the prisoners. It says all the prisoners were listening, but it made an impact on the guard. This guard, the reason why he drew his sword to kill himself was because in the law, if he were to lose any of his prisoners, he would then be executed for losing them. So he said, hey, I'll just expedite this process and I'm going to take my own life. And Paul and Silas say, no, wait, don't do that. All of us are here. We're all accounted for. That's countercultural, right? Like if the prison doors fell open and all the shackles fell off, wouldn't all the prisoners just run out? The text doesn't say this, so I'm not saying that it does, but inferring because the prisoners were listening to Paul and Silas, maybe they wanted to see and hear how Paul and Silas and what they were going to do in this situation, and they stayed put. That's what they did. Even in the storm. Hey, I want to flee. I want to get out of this storm as fast as possible. But this storm isn't just for me. It's for those that are around me. It says in the text that the jailer comes into a relationship with Jesus, and Kenneth Gangle writes this about this. He says, God's intent on this occasion was not the physical deliverance of his servants, but the spiritual deliverance of the jailer, and his family. Maybe the storm that you're going through, maybe the storm that you have gone through, or maybe the storm that you will go through isn't just for you, but it's for the spiritual deliverance of someone around you. You see, we testify God's God's goodness, not just for ourselves, so we can say, hey, look, see what God has done to me, and then just get all the praise. No, we testify of God's goodness so that we may encourage the believer, encourage the unbeliever that, hey, come and follow this Jesus guy. Maybe think of it this way. A lot of us have no issues and have no problem thinking that and believing that what God gives us when it comes to time, energy, and resources are to be used to bring him glory. We're to steward these things well. You've probably heard that said many a times. Maybe the same thing is true for storms. We're to steward storms just like we would resources. We're to steward storms just like we would resources. So not only did this make an impact and change the jailer's life, but let's look at what the text says, looking at, picking up in verse 30 again. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up to his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire family that he had believed in God. So the third thing we see here are that storms impact generationally. They impact generationally. It's not just for you and for those around you, but it's for the generations to come. Oftentimes we get so caught up in the midst of a storm thinking about just ourselves and how it impacts us that we miss out on how it does impact our family, how it impacts our kids. I know the stress of, of life being a parent, trying to protect your kids and keep things from them. When things come, and it's like, man, we just got to keep pushing forward and live life the way that we're doing so our kids don't know what's going on. But in reality, when we live those things out authentically with our kids, they see how to model following after Jesus. As I said, we're supposed to testify. The word tells us that we're to testify the, uh, to the congregation, to the people of what God's goodness is and how he's done amazing things. And so this book, The Insanity of God, I could tell you the story, but I'm not going to do justice by telling you it. So I'm going to read you this story. It's called, as Nick Ripkin, the author of this, I heard him tell this story in person when I was a student at Liberty University, and the entire class was just in awe of what God had done. So here in this, in this book, he talks about this story of this man named Dmitri in Russia. 
He said, we finally arrived in a small Russian village and stopped in front of a tiny dwelling. Dimitri opened the door and graciously welcomed us into his tiny home. I want you to sit here, he instructed me. This was where I was sitting when the authorities came to arrest me and send me to prison for 17 years. Dimitri told me that he had been born and raised in a believing family. His parents had taken him to church as a child. Over the decades, he explained, communism slowly destroyed most of the churches and places of worship. Many pastors were imprisoned or killed. By the time he was grown, Dimitri told me the nearest remaining church building was a three-day walk away. It was impossible for his family to attend church more than once or twice a year. One day, Dimitri told me, I said to my wife, you'll probably think that I'm insane. I know I have no religious training whatsoever, but I'm concerned that our sons are growing up without learning about Jesus. This may sound like a crazy idea, but what would you think if just one night a week, we gathered the boys together so I could read them a Bible story and try to give them a little of the training they are missing because we no longer have a real church. What Dimitri didn't know was that his wife had been praying for years that her husband would do something like that. She readily embraced the idea. He started teaching the family one night a week. Dimitri would read from the old family Bible, then he would try to explain what he had just read so that his children could understand. As he relearned and retold the Bible stories, his son soon began helping with the task. Eventually, the boys and Dimitri and his wife were telling the familiar stories back and forth to each other. The more they learned, the more the children seemed to enjoy their family worship time. Eventually, the boys started asking for more. Papa, can we sing those songs that they sing when we go to, to the real church? So Dimitri and his wife taught them the traditional songs of their faith. It seemed a natural progression for the family, not only to read the Bible and sing, but also to take time to pray. And they began to do that. Nothing could be hidden for long in small villages. Houses were close together and windows were often open. Neighbors began to notice what was going on with Dimitri's family. Some of them asked if they could come and listen to the Bible stories and sing the familiar songs. By the time the little group grew to 25 people, the authorities had noticed. Local party officials came to see Dimitri. They threatened him physically, which was to be expected. What upset Dimitri much more was their accusation, you have started an illegal church. How can you say that, he argued. I have no religious training, I am not a pastor, and this is not a church building. We are just a group of family and friends getting together. All we are doing is reading and talking about the Bible, singing, praying, and sometimes sharing what money we have to help out a poor neighbor. How can you call that a church? I almost laughed at the irony of this claim, but this was early in my pilgrimage. I could not easily associate the truth that he was sharing. Looking back now, I understand that one of the most accurate ways to detect and measure the activity of God is to note the amount of opposition that is present. The stronger the persecution, the more significant the spiritual vitality of the believers. Surprisingly, all too often, persecutors sense the activity of God before the believing participants even realize the significance of what is happening. In the case of Dimitri, the officials could sense the threat of what he was doing long before it even crossed his mind. The communist official told Dimitri, we don't care what you call it, but this looks like a church to us. And if you don't stop, bad things are going to happen. When the group grew to 50 people, authorities made good of their threats. He got fired from his job, his wife lost her teaching position, and his kids were expelled from school. And little things like that, he said. When the number of people grew to 75, there was no place for everyone to sit. 
Villagers stood shoulder to shoulder, cheek to cheek inside the church. They pressed closed in around the windows on the outside so they could listen to this man lead the, God, lead the people of God in worship. Then one night, as Dimitri spoke, sitting in the chair where I was now seated, the door to his house suddenly violently burst open. An officer and soldiers pushed through the crowds. The officer grabbed Dimitri by the shirt, slapped him rhythmically back and forth across the face, slamming him against the wall, and said in a cold voice, We have warned you and warned you and warned you. I will not warn you again. If you do not stop this nonsense, then this is the least that's going to happen to you. As the officer pushed his way back toward the door, a small grandmother took her life in her hands, stepped out of the nominee of the worshiping community, and waved her finger in this officer's face, sounding like an Old Testament prophet, and declared, You have laid hands on a man of God. You shall not live. That happened on a Tuesday evening, and on Thursday night, that officer dropped dead of a heart attack. The fear of God swept through the community, and the next house church service, more than 150 people showed up. At that time, the officers came in, the authority came in, and they arrested Dimitri. Dimitri was taken to a prison in Russia over 1,000 kilometers away from his house, which is roughly 600 miles. So from here in Roanoke, it would be to go to Memphis, Tennessee, is how far he was away from his family. There, he said he did two things that his father had taught him and that this was his offering to God every day. Every morning, he would get up out of his bed and he would stand and he would look eastward with his hands raised in the air. He would sing what he calls his heart song. It says as he did so, 1,500 criminals would begin shouting at him, cursing at him, taking their mugs and beating the bars of the jail and trying to get this man to just shut up. But he just kept singing day after day after he even said that they would throw food and fecal matter at him to try to get him to shut up. The second practice he would do every single time he found the opportunity is anytime he found a scrap piece of paper and a pencil or a piece of charcoal, he would write as much scripture or song or God's faithfulness to him that he could. And he would slap it up against the wall where there was water streaming in and that was his offering and his beacon of light to those around him. Every time he did so, he said when an officer walked by and they saw it, they would open up the doors, they would rip it down, and they would begin beating him over and over and over and over again. Then Dimitri recounts, he says, but one morning I was given the greatest gift of all. I found an entire sheet of paper and right beside it a pencil. And he said, I wrote front and back on that paper as much scripture, as much song, as much prayer, as much as I could fit on it. And then he said, I ever so proudly stood up and smacked it against my wall and sang my heart song. Of course, he knew that he'd be beaten and angered and hurt for this. So as soon as the officer walked by, they pulled him out and they began to berate him and began to beat him again. And he knew that this was kind of the one and all. Throughout this time, the, the, the people in the prison would tell him horrendous things about what had happened to his family. They told him that his wife had been killed, she had been murdered, and his boys had been claimed by the state, and their house was destroyed. So Dimitri came to his wit's end, and he told them, he said, throughout this whole time, all he had to do was sign a paper that said that he is not a follower of Jesus and that he was a secret spy to try to destroy the USSR from the inside out, and they would let him go. And when he told him that his family had been, been killed and gone, he said, I'm, I'm done, I can't do this anymore. And he went to go sign that paper. And the night before he did so, he said he was sitting in his jail cell and he was praying. And he said, audibly, he heard his family praying over him. 
And then he began to see a vision from God where he saw his wife and kids sitting in his dining room table praying over him that he would remain steadfast. Dimitri, the next morning, says he woke up. The document was brought in. He stood in his jail cell and he said, I'm not signing anything. The guards were incredulous. They had thought that he, they had, that he was beaten and destroyed. What happened? He demanded them and he told them all that had happened, that he had saw his wife. And then he said, I know that it was probably foolish, but I couldn't help. Him. Then he, he put the piece of paper up. And as he's being dragged out of his jail cell, he was dragged to the quarter, to the center of the prison where he was going to be executed. And he said the strangest thing happened. Before they reached the door leading to the courtyard, before stepping out of the place of execution, 1,500 hardened criminals rose to their feet and sang in unison the most beautiful choir version of his heart song. So the guards were completely taken off, couldn't understand what was going on, so they took him back into the prison. You know what happened the very next day? They said, Dimitri, we don't know what you are, but you're not a normal man. You're free to go home. And our reason why I share that story is because in the midst of persecution, in the midst of a storm, Dimitri could have gave up, but it made an impact generationally, much like we see here in this text in Acts chapter 16. Dimitri goes back to his family. Obviously, he's still alive. Nick Ripkin talked to him and heard his stories. Do you know where his sons are now? His sons went on to be the chaplain at the prison that he was arrested and put in. My dad grew up in an alcoholic household. His dad was an alcoholic, was mentally and physically abusive. His dad's dad was an alcoholic, mentally and physically abusive. His dad's dad's dad was an alcoholic, mentally and physically abusive. My dad came into a relationship with Jesus, and he changed that. And I didn't have to live in a mentally or physically abusive house because the gospel impacted one man. And we have the opportunity to live in a storm and through a storm to change generationally those after us. The cycle of sin, the cycle of what's going on in your house doesn't have to continue. When you come into a relationship with Jesus, it can end here and now because of who Jesus is. As the jailer said, what must I do to be saved? <laughs> Believe and receive that Jesus is the Lord of all. So Father, I thank you. Thank you for this morning, Lord. I pray that as the worship team comes up and we get to sing here soon of the goodness and the beauty of your name, Lord, that in the midst of storms, in the midst of, of things that go around us, Lord, you are speaking to us and you are growing us. You are causing us to, to move from, from independence of you to dependence upon you. We're, we're moving and, and people are seeing around us how the gospel impacts us personally and they hopefully long after those things. And Lord, how, how the gospel changes generations. When you come into our lives, Lord, as we saw here, the Philippian jailer and Dimitri and his family and in my dad's life, that when the gospel changes one person, it can change generations from there. That we no longer have to live in the bondage and the sin of the slavery of sin, but we are living the freedom of you, Jesus, because you've come to make us alive and well. So, Father, I pray that if there's a person here, a person at North Campus, a person listening online, that they are like the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? that they would cry out to you and say, Jesus, I realize that I'm a sinner in need of you, that I need you to set me free. I need you to release me. And I want to follow after you for all the days of my life. Would you change me? Would you transform me from the inside out? 
Lord, we thank you for your goodness. Lord, we thank you for the obedience of the Philippian jailer that he and his family, after they were changed, it says they went through in the believers' baptisms of the waters. Saying that they professed with their mouths that they believe in you, Jesus, and they walked through it and they demonstrated, I'm now a follower of Jesus. Lord, maybe there's people in the room that have never made that public profession of faith. I follow after you. Spirit of the living God, would you give us the boldness to proclaim? Would you give us the boldness to take steps in faith and walking after you? Jesus, we praise you because you are worthy. We worship you because you're worthy. We worship you with all of who we are because we desire to see you face to face one day. Jesus, thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for healing us. Thank you for releasing us of the bondage. Lord, thank you in the midst. Give us perspective to see a storm to grow in our faith, to produce fruit. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.